welcome to Ogilav Nanagus. Conversations about Irish mythology with the story archaeologist Chris Thompson and Isolde Carmody at www.storyarchaeology.com. A Story Archaeology Midwinter Special. A crock of old cobblers. Where do leprechauns come from? The Adventures of Fergus MacLeader. Once upon a time, there was a king in Ulster who was called Fergus MacLeader. And he had in his household a woman called Dorn who really didn't want to be there. One day, after Fergus had sorted out a load of legal stuff, he went off with his charioteer for a day at the seaside. As soon as they got there, they both fell asleep. While Fergus was asleep, three small water creatures came creeping out of the sea, removed Fergus's sword and started to carry him down toward the watery depth. But as soon as Fergus's toes touched the water, he woke up, grabbed three of these little people, two in each hand and one against his chest. A life for a life, said the head of these small people. All right then, said Fergus, as long as you give me three wishes. Okay then, said the head small person, as long as it's not anything impossible. Right, says Fergus, I'll tell you what, you guys can all go swimming around underwater without having to breathe. That's what I'd like to be able to do. Grand so, said the head of the lugger pan, because that's what these small people were. All you have to do is take these herbs and stick them in your ears and you'll be ground for swimming around under all the lakes and the pools and the seas of Ulster. But the only thing you can't do is to go swimming here in Loch Rodriga, even though it's in your own territory. Just never try it here. Fine, says Fergus, and he's very happy with this and goes off back to Evelmacha with his charioteer and the ear herbs. So he spent a nice few months going around snorkelling in all of the ponds and the lakes, the rivers and pretty much any puddle he could find all over Ulster. But the novelty wore off quite quickly and finally he said to himself, you know, I can't imagine what's so bad about Loch Rodriga that I'm not allowed to go there. Do you know what? It's the only place I haven't gone swimming yet. So off he trots with his charioteer back to Loch Rodriga, leaves the charioteer having a nap on the seashore and off he goes under the water in the bay. And what should he see there? Only the strangest and most peculiar sea monster you could ever imagine. At one moment, it would swell itself up to the size of an enormous giant beach ball. And then at the next moment, it would shrink itself down so that it was nothing more than a strip of weed floating in the sea. And it kept on expanding and contracting and expanding and contracting like a smith's bellows. And it was so strange that Fergus went, Aah! And then the wind changed. And his face stayed like that. He didn't notice, though, and he ran for his life back up onto the beach and went and found his charioteer. And when he woke his charioteer up, he said, Is there something wrong with my case? The charioteer said, Oh, it's looking a little bit off, but don't be worrying about it. You just lie down and have a bit of a nap, and I'm sure it'll be fine afterwards. So he managed to soothe King Fergus down and tucked him in for his nap. And then as soon as the king was asleep, off he races back to Evelmacher, gathers together all of the wisest people in Ulster and says, what are we going to do? Now we've got a blemished king. That's nothing good. Is there anyone else that could possibly be a king in Ulster? 
And all the wise people of Ulster said, uh, I don't think we have anyone on the books right now. But I'll tell you what, let's fire every member of court that is of a lowly status, who might be a jester or a fool or someone who would remark impolitely to the king that he's got a blemish. And as well as that, we'll make sure that any time he's getting his hair done, he lies backwards over a bowl of water so he'll never see his own reflection. So they put this plan into action and the charioteer rushed off back to the beach, woke up the king, whose face was still very twisty, and brought him back to the court. This all went fine for about seven years, until one day when Fergus was getting his hair washed by that woman Dorn, who really didn't want to be there. She was originally of noble birth, but now she had gone into bondage with the king for a very complicated legal reason that I won't talk about now. Fergus thought that Dorn was taking her time a bit with the old hair washing, and so he gave out to her and gave a lash with his horsewhip at her, going, speed up you! And being of noble birth, she was a bit fed up with this kind of treatment, and she said, who are you telling to speed up, twisty face? Fergus was not pleased with this. To express his displeasure, he happened to bisect her with the sword that he had lying around. But after this initial outburst, he did then look at his own reflection in the water and realised, actually, the face was pretty bad. It was pretty awful and he knew exactly what the cause was. Off he rushed back to Loch Rodriga and all of the court of Ulster following after him to see what he was going to do. He dove into the bay and found the water monster. And for a day and a night, the sea was boiling from their fighting and the waves went from foaming white to foaming red with the blood of it until after a good 24 hours, all the men of Ulster saw Fergus limping out of the sea with the gory head of the water monster in his hand. Fergus raised it up on high and said, I am the winner! And then he fell down dead. And the moral of the story is, always be nice to your hairdresser. Oh, that's a great story. It's what I really And I like. take it this is the origin of the leprechauns, or the first time we meet them. It is. It's the oldest written record that I've come across that talks about leprechauns, even though in this text they are Luggerpun. And that changes from Luggerpun to leprechaun through metathesis. Metamorphosis? No, no, no. Metathesis <laughs> is the official term, linguistic term, for when letters are swapped around in really quite a dyslexic fashion. It's an old um, text, but uh, what's its date? It's an 8th century text, but it what's interesting is that it's preserved in two legal manuscripts. Um, there's Harleian 432 and then there's the Trinity College H318, um, which is the one that my version would have come from, mm -hmm. um, because uh, it was something we did possibly in the first year of my old Irish course with Damien McManus. And uh, he talked about actually trying to get his hands on the manuscript to read it. He was the head of Irish in Trinity at the time. Mm -hmm. And of course, it's a Trinity manuscript. So he wrote off to the manuscript reading room and said, um, I want to have a look at H318 for my saga course. And they wrote back to him and they said, Dear Professor McManus, head <laughs> of the Irish department, the manuscript that you've requested is a legal manuscript. And not a saga. And not a saga manuscript. <laughs> Duh. To which he wrote back and said, I know. <laughs> but as it happens, the only source for this particular story in this old form is from the legal text. And with all of this toing and froing and humming and hawing, 
as eventually he just like literally ran up the road to the academy the royal irish academy which is on dawson street so from like nassau street up dawson street if you know dublin it's mm-hmm. it's you know just two minutes road, yeah, yeah. Um, and he went in there where they have a facsimile of H318. And he said, look, you know, I'm having trouble getting this from uh, the library in Trinity. Could I have a look at it here? And they went, oh, of course you can, Damien, not a problem. Here you go, take the facsimile home with you and bring it back whenever you like. <laughs> <laughs> and so by the time Trinity finally said, oh, I suppose we will allow you to look at our precious manuscript, he'd already done all the work on it. <laughs> so... <laughs> I know you've got to fund this for this story. It, it's really <laughs> good. Sorts of it's not the only story I have about the manuscript library in Trinity. Now, maybe it's changed since I was there, but, you know, yeah. Well, I don't know, look upon leprechaun. Mm. There's not much sign of the travesties that <laughs> appear every Paddy's Day, then. Uh, no, thankfully. I mean, we seem to have re-imported those awful kind of green and orange monstrosities from America and Australia. Yeah, well, at least we don't dye the Liffey green. Well, I think it was a travesty one year possibly even to promote the film Flubber which is even worse although I don't think anyone noticed. I was just thinking about these ones in that story mm. I mean the, the the modern motives that most people would um, popularly associate with mm. leprechauns yeah. just aren't there. Yeah. I mean there's no rainbows mm-hmm. there's definitely no crock of gold nope. there's no shoemaking God involved. No. <laughs> but they are small people and in fact it seems like the derivation of the word uh, Lugrapun is from Lou Corkbon and that literally means small bodies. So mm. that does seem to be essential to them. And of course, Fergus does ask for three wishes, one from each look upon. He does, although he only gets one of them. But I suppose one could say that the tricky nature of the creatures yes. seems to go right back to the beginning. I think so, yeah. But I think we should come back to that later. We will. It wasn't a story I knew well until you introduced me to it, and no, I'm really I, glad you did. I want everyone to know about this story. <laughs> but when I was reading your translation mm. you, know, you sent me the other day, there were some extra bits that didn't make it into your telling. Well, and I'm not surprised. No, it, it, it would have got bogged down before it even began. For instance, uh, Dern, who exactly is she? Well, this is almost like the pretext for the whole story, really, which is why I say the moral is to always be nice to your hairdresser, because she's a noblewoman, but she has had um, a son with someone who's an outsider, Joris. Mm. That means that her son has absolutely no status, and she has sole legal responsibility for everything that he does. Mm. So right at the beginning, her son is one of... A, a band of brigands. He's gone and done something stupid. Exactly. Who's he? done this hor- horrendous deed and because he's not legally competent, she has to be legally competent. So she, even though she's of noble birth, has to go into service in Fergus's household. She becomes a covel, which mm-hmm. is, a you know, usually translated as bondmaid, but as I'm sure our listeners will remember, is also a unit of value. Mm-hmm. It's a sort of the female slave, you know. That or, doesn't mean you say you wander around with a, a whole load of female slaves no, in your pocket. No, it? no, but you have the value of them. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so it's about sort of how she ends up in his household. It also has to do with, you know, her sort of rights to property and land being confiscated and that that, mm-hmm. once she's dead, that that land then reverts to its original owner. So mm-hmm. that's like the, the pretext for this whole story about Fergus and the leprechaun. And it means that once he kills her... Mm. He's going to lose the land that exactly. uh, she's brought him as exactly. well. Exactly, and he also then loses part of the, the compensation mm-hmm. um, that, that he got for the legal breach. It's very much about law, this text, isn't it? Yes, whatever about the lugger pan. I said before, like when Damien was trying to get hold of the manuscript, that he was told, no, it's inside a law text. And that's because um, 
it appears almost like a gloss like to a legal story text. The gloss. whole story. And it's like, it's a saga that sets legal precedent. Okay. Um, so the entire opening section is all about kind of political skirmishing in Ulster over kingship and so on. And that Fergus MacLeager has offered his legal protection to someone who is then murdered by this band of five or six young lads, one of whom is Dern's son. Mm. Um, and the four of, of the others are actually her brothers, so she's really got it coming and going that way. And um, yeah, the, It's tough for her. Yeah, it really is, yeah. Um, it's really not her fault, so you can't exactly blame her for getting fed up with being treated as a slave woman. There's a gloss on this gloss. The legal <laughs> commentator does say that, yeah. that the amount that is given in compensation to the king for his protection having been breached, sets the amount, if you like, for future legal cases. So it sets it at one couple per five people involved or something like that. And so the commentator has sort of drawn that out and made that his point that he's demonstrated so the story. this becomes the example. Exactly. And um, the reason why this amount was set. Exactly, yes. yeah. It's a very interesting thing. No wonder yeah. it's kept as a legal debt, but it's still yeah. a really good story. It is, yeah. Yeah, but then there's this really weird comment. Yes. <laughs> after, you know, he's caught them and says, you know, that he wants, wants the wishes. Yes, he'll let the them go life for a life bit. Yeah. You get the bit about the lugapon sucking on Fergus's nipple yeah. and grabbing his cheek. Mm. And this is part of him asking for mercy. Yeah. asking for quarter yeah and in fact there's a little bit in the text where Fergus says what are you doing that for and what the leprechaun replies is that is one of the rules of fair combat with us so he's saying you know this is our custom you know I've just grabbed Deal onto your cheek and sucked <laughs> your nipple but that's how we do things yeah but I have to say that that um, this is probably a unique act you know yeah. the, it's actually it's very it's specific not to this tale very specific to this tale yeah. it's not a common thing and it's not an ancient lost ritual it's no. the only example really there mm. is but an awful lot has been made of this i mean it's one of those things that you hear every now and then oh yes and one of the ancient irish practices was nipple sucking you know but again this is really the only reference yeah that the, I only, to it. the only other example that i can find anyway mm. is from patrick's confessions and there i don't know i get the feeling though i haven't read it in full that this seems to be a metaphor for acting like a child in front of pagan princes yeah he's sort of saying yeah well they may have done that sort of thing long ago, yeah. that's all i know but uh, i'm not going to act like that yes yeah and in fact i mean in, in that regard i think that patrick is as reliable a guide to sort of pre-christian irish culture as julius caesar is about the mm. Continental Celts, you know, that a lot of things are taken from Patrick's comments, you know, about, oh, and this is how they used to do things in Ireland when they were all savages. A bit like Gerald, Geraldus Cambrensis. exactly, yeah. yeah. You know, so these are not necessarily, um, you know, first-hand reliable sources. They're often... <laughs> things that are made much of and I think that this is one of them. Recently I, I found and read an article by um, Jacqueline Borsha. Yes we've used some of her stuff before and in fact you know we uh, published a couple of our articles on, with her permission on the website so she's sort of a, a friend of story archaeology I'd like it's to say. an excellent article. Yeah. Although this article is primarily concerning sacred kingship yeah. she's also linked the story of Fergus with the birth of Cormac. Yeah and she's made some really interesting and very neat parallels I think. Gave us some new ideas as well. I think so, thinking. yeah. So, in the birth of Cormac, Edon is the daughter of Olakaka. Yeah, Olakaka, which I think is terrible edge, which 
and he's a smith and i think that's a really good name for a smith yeah it is yeah but anyway she yeah. spends one night with the king yes and this is king art who is the son of concade catholic who is one of these great progenitors of kings yeah well predictably she gets yes. pregnant and then gives birth to the future king cormac yes but the thing is she gets stuck out in the wilderness on the border between two territories all alone except for one attendant mm-hmm. and it's there she gives birth yeah and after giving birth, both she and the attendant, I suppose quite naturally, fall asleep. Yes. <laughs> and while they're asleep, her child is taken away by wolves. Mm. But the child survives, suckled by a she-wolf, mm. for a long time until he's old enough to crawl. Yeah. It's quite a well-known story. It is a good one. And you really liked that literal translation that Jacqueline gave of the she-wolf as Ban Maktirde, because it literally means sort of female son of the land. Yeah, it feels good, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, it does. And Ma- it's a nice thing to draw. Yeah. yeah, yeah, just like that. Yeah. Anyway, the young child is found safe and sound and eventually reunited with his mother yeah. and goes on to be the legendary law giver Cormac Macart. Yes. Of whom great, great and many stories are told, oh, yes. including so we still told a few, <laughs> a episodes, few episodes ago. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, Jacqueline Borgia gives a really neat little table Yeah. Um, comparing the motives in the birth of Cormac with Fergus Major. I think it's... Yeah worth going through them. I think it's worth going through the points because they are very interesting. First, the king and his male charioteer, that's Fergus's charioteer. Yeah, or the queen laid on and her female attendant. First, they all sort of suddenly fall asleep. Yes. That seems to get the thing started. Exactly. Secondly, they're all on borders. I mean, mm. Fergus is on the border between the sea and the land. Yeah. And uh, the queen, well, she's between two territories yeah. as well. Yeah. And they're all wild areas, both of them. Yeah, yeah. Well, so both pairs. Exactly, wild yeah. Areas. yeah. As Borgia puts it, it's an odd sort of phrase. A foreign invasion occurs. Yeah, and what she means by that is that in Fergus MacLeja, you have these strange water sprites coming out of the sea to try and abduct the King Fergus. And then in the story of the birth of Cormac, um, it's these wolves who come and abduct the future King Cormac. So that's the sort of the invasion, if you like, is these att- attempted abductions. Yeah, and then you get the really interesting bit, and mm. I think the reason why we're going through this. Yeah. She says that the pact between Fergus and the Lookerborn mm. is sealed by the sucking of nipples, mm. while the survival of the baby Cormac is achieved by the sucking on the wolf's teeth. Yeah, yeah. And I think that's a very good point. Yeah, I think that's kind of key in some ways to understanding this. That's why I don't think it's a lost ritual of kinship yeah. or submission to authority. No, I, I think that this is a one-off and that it's that comparison with the story of Cormac that makes it, I think, pretty clear that the Lugerpan uh, sucking on the nipple is an image for breastfeeding. And what you have is the Lugerpan who, as we've seen, it's is a small definitely creature. a small human, small human, who's basically imitating a baby. And that Fergus there is sort of imitating a mother. Yeah. And it's this sort of parody, taboo-breaking ba- joke about breastfeeding, which is usually something very sacred, very private, as, you know, people still feel it's something very private and shouldn't be mocked at all. But these are Irish stories, and they do this kind of stuff all the time. They parody something that's meant to be reverential, and it's all this sort of very slightly discomforting Or or making that idea of protecting. Yeah. And, oh, he's taken on Fergus's protection. Yeah, yeah. And it's now become a sort of rather jokey, literal image. Yeah. Which the the audience would have just found hilarious. Yes, and I think it is hilarious. (laughs) And they would have understood that this idea of protection... Yeah. Well, if you take that to the literal extent... Yeah. You might as well breastfeed this little creature. Exactly. 
exactly. But it's also it's the sort of the inherent wrongness that in fact the small person is not a baby, it's a it's an adult male. Um and that the king who is supposed to be a protector isn't a woman with breasts. And so it's all that kind of wrongness and that strangeness, that's what gives the image its, it's power. It's completely surreal. It is. And totally. it's quite yeah. fun. <laughs> and indeed, I mean as if we needed further support for this being in fact something of a joke. The later version uh, is so full of risque humour and some things that are really just quite uh, rude, let's say, that it was far too much for Stanisha O'Grady. He just left huge chunks out of his translation. <laughs> well, I suppose there's one more thing with these looker mm. I mean, one of the glosses suggests, in fact, the power to um, swim underwater actually came from wrapping a towel around his head. <laughs> Well, it wasn't quite a towel. It was supposed to be the Luckerpun's cloak that Fergus wrapped around his face. But Douglas Adams would certainly have approved of the image. <laughs> and there's, there's yet another version. In the later version, it's just a pair of fancy shoes that lets Fergus walk on water. But for my money, you just can't beat sticking herbs in your ears. Is this person experience it? <laughs> no, it's not. But it was good enough for J.K. Rowling, even if she couldn't quite um, get Harry Potter sticking gillyweed in his ears, yeah. which is a great pity, I think. Well, he didn't have to meet the bug platter beast of Charles, no. did he? <laughs> Not like Fergus. No. <laughs> we keep mentioning this later version. Yeah. Look, can you do a reduced Shakespeare Company version of it? Absolutely. In a minute or something. No, no, absolutely not. It is far too long and convoluted. But it is incredibly funny and really entertaining. And please, please, please do go and read the full version. Yeah, we'll put it on the blog. We will. Or yeah. the link to it, whichever yeah. you choose. We can't leave it like that, though. I mean, we really can't. No. Now, it is a later text than the other, isn't it? Oh, most certainly. I mean, it was published in uh, Stanish O'Grady's Silver Gadelica. Mm. Um, but he got it from Egerton 1782, which is a British Museum uh, mm. manuscript or British Library manuscript. It was composed in the early 16th century, possibly around 1517. It's one of those manuscripts which has a great deal of good stories in it. Mm. It's mm. got loads, of, pretty much all of the time that you could mm. uh, different tones that you could possibly wish for. Um, it's even got a bit of Doom, the prose parts of Doom. Mm-hmm. It's got a lot of kind of prose extracts of longer stories that we've looked at. It's also got Dalderica's Hostel, which oh, is... Oh, right. Which yeah. they haven't yet, but we keep meeting. No, to. exactly, yeah. It's the beginning that's really different. The oh, whole yeah. first half of the story is like a a, um, a pre-story to the other. It's a prequel exactly. to the... Well, yeah. it is a prequel. Yeah, yeah, very much. Um, and, of course, you've got much more backstory for mm. the, the Lubacall and much more about their environment exactly. and their world. yeah. Yeah, yeah. If we're going to go hunting leprechauns, we certainly can't leave this one out. No, no. Now, it turns out that Fergus and the men of Ulster, oh yeah, they're holding a feast the mm. same night as Yvdorn, the king of the Lubicorns, yeah. is holding a feast for his lot. Yes, and all of the great notable personages of Uvdon and his uh, Lugarpon host are described in lavish detail, as you might expect. Some of the notables would be, uh, for example, Uvdon, who's the king yeah. himself. Uh, there's his wife, who's called Bevo, and it is not, despite what you might read, it's not Bebo. It might be written Bebo, it's not, it's Bevo. Then okay. <laughs> um, there's the chief poet, who's Eshert, which funnily enough means kind of a vagrant or a tramp. So it's being rude right from I the beginning. I think so, yeah, yeah, yeah. So there's Eshert and his father is Big Son of Big. Oh yeah, small son of small. Exactly, yeah, and there's quite a lot of that in their names. Yeah, they're all sort of um, fairy, it's almost like a bit, a bit of a hey-ho getting in there. Yeah, yeah. They're all yeah. the dwarf names. Exactly. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Uh, but we mustn't forget, though, their wonderful strong man lover. And he's so powerful that he can fell a thistle 
at a single stroke. <laughs> Quite a feast, though. Mm. Oh, look, I must read that little oh, description. Yeah. Now were the spigots drawn from the vats, the colour of those vats being a dusky red after the tint of red yew. Their carvers stood up to carve for them, their cupbearers to pour, and old ale, sleep-compelling delicious, was served out to the throng, so that on one side, as on the other of the hall, they were elevated and made a huge noise of mirth. <laughs> yeah, it's lovely. It is. Pity they didn't get drunk and hilarious. Well, they still get... Huge noise of mirth. Yes. <laughs> that is great. Well, after a few drinks, mm. what happens is really what's to be expected. Uvdorn gets to boasting and bragging. Of course. And, of course, after that, he starts showing off things like, have you ever seen a king that was better than myself? And, of course, all of guests have to say, no, we haven't. Have you ever seen a strong man better than my strong man? No, we haven't. Have you ever seen horses or men of battle better than the ones that are in this house tonight? Oh, no, we haven't. And so on. Yeah, but, of course, it all ends in tears. Naturally. And when Eshert goes and laughs at the king Mm. and then informs him, yeah, well, that's all very well, but there's folk in a province not far from here who could make you lot look like pathetic weaklings. They could do anything they want to you. Mm. And he really loses it. Yeah. He just loses his rag completely and yells, Lay the poet by the heels! Which we think is more or less going, Throw him to the floor, Centurion! <laughs> yeah, it's taking his feet. Exactly, yeah. Put him. Exactly. Yeah, basically, that means you're going to end up in real trouble. Yep. And usually so. in prison. Yep. <laughs> Eshert, the poet, warns of Don that having laid hands on him and called him a liar bad is bad. a really, really bad move. And he predicts that Dangerous. sort of because of this, Ovdon himself is going to end up as a captive in Evonmacha in Ulster for five years. What's more, that he will leave his most treasured possession behind in Ulster. Yeah, and it's not just that. Then he goes on to say, uh, yeah, but it'll happen to me too. Um, I'm going to almost be drowned in the King of Ulster's wine goblet. Yes. And then he goes on with the usual prophecies, doom and gloom for the whole of the Ulster court and well, all the Ulster nobles. Of course. Well, that's what poets do. Now, because he's a poet and he has just been called a liar, he then has to prove that he was speaking the truth. It's sort of saying that, you know, truth is a defence against libel, I would mm-hmm, say. Mm-hmm. That, you know, he wasn't libeling his king, he was just dating a matter of well, fact. All this originates from a law text. Exactly, yeah, yeah. So what he requests is to have time for he himself to travel to Ulster and somehow bring back evidence that what he said, his boasts, were actually true. Yeah, so I think the king agrees. He sort of can't very well disagree. Exactly, yeah. He has to be given a chance to uh, to prove his own words. Uh, Eshert goes away and puts on his best clothes. And again, you've got this wonderful description yeah. of what he wears. Yeah. So next to his white skin, he put on a smooth and glossy shirt of delicate silk. Over that, he donned his gold-embroidered tunic and his scarlet cloak, all fringed and beautiful, in soft folds flowing, the scarlet being of the land of the Finn and the fringe of pale gold in a varied pattern. Betwixt his feet and the earth, he set his two dainty shoes of the white bronze, overlaid with ornaments of gold. After taking up his white bronze poet's wand and his silken hood, he set out. Mm-hmm. It's a beautiful description. It's lovely, yeah. He must have looked quite something. Remember, he's only small. Exactly. Well, he's small enough to drown in, or nearly drown in the king's wine goblet. As we'll see. Yeah. Imagine the astonishment at the door of Evanmacher when this tiny wee man <laughs> appears. And it says that... In all his finery. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Totally kitted out. But it does say that the, the close-cropped grass on the green of Evan comes up to this fella's tie. So he's tiny. He is rather small, yes. Um, But he is soon 
uh, you know, brought into the court. They all think he's absolutely hilarious. They thought their own poet, who is always the dwarf, was small, but they comment that this little mannequin could fit into Oid's palm. So, you know, <laughs> he's really smaller than small. When they offer him food and drink, um, lo and behold, Eshert refuses. He turns it down, and that's a refusal of hospitality. And so the uh, offended King Fergus <laughs> just picks him up and plops him into his wine glass. That's one prediction come true. Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, and it's only his fine words that prevent him exactly from fast he has talking. To talk himself out of the problem. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Mind you, I love the way he gets his own back. Mm. Having got out, and they say they clean him off with fine cloths until he spits back. Yeah, and then he probably gets his own back mm. because uh, he reveals a few poets' truths. Yes, and he particularly mentions the king's um, secret dalliance with the steward's wife. Yes. Now, I mean, Fergus is quite big about it. He just admits the truth and yeah. goes, "Yeah, and the rest," <laughs> and gradually becomes a great favorite. Favorite of yeah. the court, and they will carry him round yeah. and like put him in his pockets. And yeah, things. yeah. But in the end, when they're offering really rich gifts, mm. he blasly just turns around and says, "I'll oh, give it to the horse boys." I yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't need it. Yeah. Um, and finishes with this wonderful praise poem of of Dawn. Yes, yeah, and his kingdom. And uh, now this really is actually quite a nice summary, if you like, of the role of the poet in society, and particularly the poet as diplomat. Because here, Eschert has come from a foreign court. Um, he carries his poet's staff, which I think is really interesting, and, you know, this mention of him shaking the staff. And so that's like his passport, a bit like the apple branch allows yeah, you. Yeah, this is what struck yeah. me, that this poet's staff, we've talked about this yeah. before, this idea that the king or the chief poet yeah. carries a staff which can be shaken. Yeah. And how much like the apple branch exactly. yeah. this is. Yeah. And in fact, it was when we were talking earlier, yeah. it suddenly struck him that there he uses it mm. to cross borders. Exactly. It gives him the passport to cross borders, yeah, yeah. which is exactly what the other world apple branch yeah. does. Yeah. It seems to be the same thing. I think so, yeah. yeah. A symbol of the same thing. Exactly, say. yeah. It's, it, it is a passport, effectively. And you were telling me about another low grade, lower grade oh, poet. Oh yes, yes. Yeah, one of the things I quite like in the description of the various grades of poets. There's a low grade poet called Drishik, which is usually translated as Bramblehound. And um, I think my reading of the role of the Drishik is to wait at borders. Um, and that when a foreign poet approaches, because really it's only poets and priests later who can go from one kingdom yeah, to they another. They have the freedom to they go have, from yeah. their space, which is one of the reasons that Caesar took against them so uh, Well, much. yeah, you would imagine so. But that the Drishik is there at the border and they test, is this really a qualified poet? So they, they can kind of use... Poetic riddles, test their meter and see if they really are what they say. Sorry, about. I just had the Monty Python and the Holy Grail seen in my head. Though. Yeah. What is your name? Exactly. What is your favourite colour? Yeah. What is your best meter? Yeah, pretty <laughs> <Yes>. much. <laughs> that would make sense of why they were called Bramble Hounds. Because exactly. they're grabbing onto you and pulling you yeah, back. Yeah, yeah. You're going to get caught in the thicket. Yeah, yeah. Unless you know what you're doing. Yeah. That's a very interesting concept. Isn't it? Yeah. I mean, yeah. got a bit off. Um, a bit off topic. topic, topic but, but nevertheless. But it's... that's part of, you know, why poets are important as border crossers, you know, and, yeah. and as diplomats who, who speak for their court. And we also see Escher doing that, that when he gets to this foreign court, first of all, he has to demonstrate that he's a real poet by using his poetic arts to speak the truth, to yeah, uncover yeah. the truth about Fergus and his dalliances. They're bit of detectives, aren't they? They're the ones who see. Yes, exactly. Which, of course, is why they're also called seers. Exactly, which is why they're filler, and, yeah. and which is why one of, you know, those uh, very top accomplishments of a qualified poet are things like the embossed for us now, which is yeah. getting at the truth through poetry. So 
Eshuk demonstrates that he's a real poet because he can get at the truth through poetry. And then, what's more, now that he's accepted into this foreign court, he then gives this glowing description of his own land. So he's sort of introducing the two kings to each other at yeah. a distance. You can really see how the poets were lawgivers, yeah. lawkeepers, mm-hmm. uh, the, the, the ones who uncovered the truth, mm-hmm. the ones who seem to have almost a magic ability mm-hmm. to make things happen through their words. Exactly. It, and here we have in a, a comedic saga yeah. a perfect description of a poet. Exactly, yeah, yeah. I like that. It's yeah. great, love it. Well, anyway, I mean, after that, yeah, they, they think he's great, but they let him go as a poet. He yeah. has freedom to go return to his exactly, own land. Yeah. There's no question that he's a hostage or a mm-hmm. prisoner and what's more their own poet Oi decides yeah. to go with him exactly which again is perfectly appropriate because now Oi is going to return the favour he's going to be Fergus's ambassador in Elfdon's court mm, it's a very very good example Isn't of it? the whole role the whole system on the way you get all sorts of weird things happening mm. but I love the joke that's made that point about them walking I mean yeah. obviously uh, Oi is a dwarf but yes. he can move it a lot faster than Eshet and as they're going along, he goes, come on, you're not much of a walker, are you? Yeah. Thinking that he's just making a joke of this poor little man. Mm. You think not? <laughs> yeah. And puts on this speed, yes. this burst of speed that takes him way ahead of Oiv. In which yeah. case he goes, don't you do anything just in between? In between. <laughs> yeah. just, either it's one or the other with you. Yeah. Where's the gold mean in all this? Yeah. Eshet turned around and said, well, that's the first time I've ever heard that mentioned in your court. Yes, yeah. And really making fun of each other. Oh, exactly. yeah. Well, what I like as well is that it's a bit like um, Tolkien and his dwarves saying, we're natural sprinters. Yeah. You know? <laughs> I think that's actually... Yeah, well, yeah, well, well it might be Peter Jackson. No, but, but it's there in the exactly, book. Exactly, yeah. yeah, yeah. We dwarves never tire. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, take a break. Yeah, yeah. But then uh, once they get to the edge of the territory and the edge of the sea, and there's this sort of, well, what do we, we do, do now? That. Yeah, I can't go there, I'll drown. Exactly. And um, Eshert says, oh, don't be worrying, always. We'll, uh, the king's horse will come to us and it'll take us over the sea. And then something approaches them over the sea and Oiz says, basically, what the hell is that? <laughs> that looks like an insane hair. Because <laughs> I suppose it's small. Exactly, yeah, yeah. You know, it's designed um, for somebody of Eshet's size. Exactly, and it's brightly coloured as well. <laughs> and so Eshet says, don't be an idiot. This is the king's horse and it'll it'll take both of us all the way. You, you know? may not think it, but yeah, it will. It will. I, yeah. I that's a good opportunity to actually describe what, yeah. what's said about the horse because it's beautiful yeah. and in a way this is the original this is a horse that travels over land and sea a exactly. bit like Mananan uh, yeah. though Mananan steed is always described as a bit more tasteful than well this. yes and probably a bit bigger the horse's fashion was this two flashing fierce eyes he had an exquisite pure crimson mane with four green legs and a long tail that floated in wavy curls his colour generally was that of the prime artificer's gold work an gold encrusted bridle he bore with all it's just beautiful it, it is. reminds me of some sort of little pony I know yeah it is rather <laughs> this is the first time we meet the horse mm. we're told that um, Eshet just hopped over yeah. and uh, nothing is said of his journey mm. and it actually said in the script yeah. no nothing was known of how he got there exactly yeah. and now you're suddenly ah that's how he did it exactly, they've got yeah. this magic horse which mm. allows them to pop between places mm. obviously very quickly and in fact um, later on in the text Ufdon um, the king of the Lugarpan is very often referred to as Ufdon of the yellow horse so you know this is clearly one of his personal traits is that he has this wondrous horse oh it's great yeah. it's, it's a sort of miniature Mananam yeah yeah more jokes yeah 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 <laughs> I know Mananam can be quite tricky at oh, times yeah. well they safely and undrowned get to the kingdom <laughs> of the Lagerpan and always does become a great 
favourite in their court, despite his monstrous size. Mm-hmm. Um, but this now, of course, Eschert has brought back the proof that he required uh, from the court of Ulster, and it's his chance to get his own back on of Dawn the King. As we'll see when we get back to the stories of Mungon, there are loads of really good stories which are about poets getting one over on their kings or even vice versa. And this is another one of them, isn't it? It is, it really is. It's that kind of slight jostling match between the chief poet who has this authority of truth and the king who has the authority of being the king. Which kind of reflects the battle between who had the real power, the kings or the poets. Yeah, yeah. And here we've got another one reflecting that. Yeah. Um, So now that Eshert has proven his truth, uh, he challenges his king to go to the court at Evonmacher and to get um, a little taste of the king's porridge before Fergus wakes up in the morning. <laughs> so go and grab his breakfast before he gets exactly. up. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Now, Elfton um, is pretty horrified and really quite terrified as well at the, the whole prospect of this. But his long-suffering and probably much smarter wife, Bevo, uh, does say that she'll go with him. Don't worry, yeah. I'll keep an eye on you. You'll be fine yeah. if I go with you. <laughs> exactly. And that's what they do. They get mm. horse and off they go. Mm. And they um, they get to Alvamaca and they find the porridge yeah. but the, there's this big problem he's just too small to get <laughs> up to the ladle of the cauldron yeah. he reaches out and he can't do it and his wife says look why did you stand on your horse's back? Yeah. But even standing on the back of the horse, he still can't reach yeah. the top of the cauldron and he tries to grab onto the ladle and he mm. manages to pull himself up and then, surprise, surprise, he falls in. Yes. <laughs> and there he is, swimming around in the porridge, yeah. porridge and the porridge is obviously extremely glutinous yes. and thick. Yes. And he goes, my legs are stuck, yeah. I can't get out. Yeah. And she said, in the end, he says, I'm lost, you go, Bevo. Yeah. Go take the horse and go back to our land. She says, no, I won't leave you. Yeah. I'll stay with you and see what happens. Yes, but this, of course, is after this long shouted sort of poetic exchange <laughs> yeah, between the poor of Dawn Down stuck in the porridge saying it's as though I've got iron fetters on my hands and feet and she's up there oh, at the ring going oh dot man what yeah, should I do exactly yeah, but it's, it doesn't really help no it doesn't <laughs> and of course by morning the everybody gets up yes. and they're caught exactly and um, the entirety of the province of Ulster laughs at this poor little man stuck in the porridge mm-hmm. which obviously as a king of Don is not too pleased about it. No, and it's if you like the predictions come true. Exactly, the whole of you know that there is a race of people. There's a province in Ulster mm. where they would look like pathetic weaklings. Exactly, yes. yeah, yeah, and they have. Yeah, <laughs> and I love the way Fergus is, is delighted with his new plaything. Yeah, and he sort of looks at me. Oh, another one. Yeah, and he goes. Yeah, but that's not the one that he was before. This one's got a black patch. Yes, yes. Because <laughs> we're told that all the people of Uvdorn's realm are yeah, blonde, exactly, except for him. Yeah, that he's the only one who isn't. Uvdorn gets sent off to <laughs> kind of fight it out with the local rabble and yeah, the, the lower orders. It's really insulting. It Even is. The king gets sent off to join the servants. Yeah. Well, he had rabble. found him in his porridge, you know. <laughs> um, but really what's going on is that Fergus is keeping Bevo for himself. Right. And we now come to a bit that O'Grady could not bring himself to translate yeah, and it's publish. Because you really concentrated on the translation of the earlier. Yeah text you'd, you'd really only depended on the on the translation, translation for this yeah we, this isn't the main one we were yeah. looking at and of course when i was looking at the 8th century text back in in university uh, there was a comment i came across in my notes that said that the later version was full of sex but in fact i couldn't find any in o'grady's translation yeah and that was it so you mentioned it to me yeah and then when i was looking for something else completely different uh, a reference came up that i follow which took us to uh what was it, politics.ie? Yeah. Places. yeah. It just came up as yeah. 
yeah. being connected with Fergus MacLeaver. Yeah. So I looked at it, and there was a contributor to yeah. that who um, was tra- translated this missing section. Exactly, yeah. And going, well, you know, we can... Uh, old Standish O'Grady, he couldn't deal with this, but yeah. uh, he did leave uh, Irish texts in a better... Better state than he found, found them. them. Yeah, yeah. But here it is. Exactly, yeah. So, so we have to thank that contributor... Um, who we will at some point try to track down and thank personally. But the story is that Fergus basically hops into bed with Bevo. And, uh, but she is confused because he keeps putting his hand on the top of her head. And she asks him why he's doing that. And he comments that his manly member is seven fists in length, but she's only three fists in length. <laughs> so how is it that it doesn't just pop out through the top of her head? <laughs> Yeah, I think it was just too much for the I late know. 19th century contributors. Absolutely, yeah. And I fancy, but with Lady Gregory and stuff. Yeah. <laughs> but her response is that she laughs and she kind of goes, ah, would you come on, Fergus? Don't you know, a woman's thighs can absorb an awful lot. <laughs> it's a lovely bit. It, it deserves to be there. It really does. But what I think is even funnier is the fact they seem to be having a high old time yeah. and Bebo doesn't seem to mind at Not all. Not at all. But it's poor old you've done who keeps yeah. trying to get into the room. I know, it gets thrown out four times and there's sort of a bit of toing and froing. So where, in and, what did he say? Uh, well, Fergus is kind of sort of... Because oh, this is also missing. Ex- course, it is, yeah. And, I've, I've and only you translated this bit. I've only glanced at it, really. Mm-hmm. And basically, the uh, Dawn kind of comes in and Fergus basically says, go away. And first, the first time Dawn says, oh, well, you seem to be enjoying yourself. And then the next time, oh, well, she seems to be enjoying herself. And the third time, oh, you both seem to be enjoying yourselves. <laughs> so, but what he's actually annoyed about, he's not annoyed about uh, Fergus and Bevo despite the top of the head problem um, what he's annoyed about is that he's been left outside with the lower classes and when he's a king he's a king and, and he ought really to be bad. treated a lot better yeah <laughs> but this whole balderization yeah. thing is, is interesting it because is. so much of the translation work was done towards the end of the 19th century or oh, beginning yeah. of the 20th century and sensibilities were a little more oh, um, god they were so repressed it yeah. is unbelievable <laughs> I was going to say a little more sensitive even you know for scholarly purposes yeah. you know you would think that uh, the, the scholarship comes above all but no they really couldn't get over it and just think back to Whitley Stokes I mean Mm. we weren't weren't using the Whitley Stokes translation a lot of the time Mm. for um, For Moitura Moitura, but that was the one I first came across before Elizabeth Gray Mm. and uh, he left out the whole wonderful description of the Dugda yeah 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 you know just the god yeah yeah just doesn't even feature in it and for most people who couldn't go back to the Irish versions they had no idea it was there. I know. And it's sort of become another kind of a problem now because with the availability of digital texts, which is where, you know, I'm depending on an awful lot mm-hmm. for, for getting the published texts. And so, of course, it's out of copyright texts and they're the Victorian ones. Mm. So, And what's more difficult, actually, is to find the more recent work that's been done, which is usually just published in journals or which is only recently published in hard copy, you know, and those are the things I can't get my hands on. No, and even though you've got the perfect right to get some mm. of them, it's just you can't read them. Uh, yeah, exactly. Because you can only read things digitally. Uh, yeah, yeah. So, and I can't translate for you. No, no. But... <laughs> Anyway, um, it's, it's a great story, isn't it? It is, but it's just, it, you miss out on some of the richest stuff, you know. I mean, how is it that just because there is sex in a story, how does that suddenly make it low or not literary or, do you know what I mean? It, that it was the way it was regarded. Yeah, exactly. And I get the feeling that Lady Gregory, for all, and she's, I'm a great fan of yeah. Lady Gregory, but she was concerned about it being high tone mm. so that everybody would, would recognise it as good literature. Exactly, and see its value, yeah. yeah. 
Oh, well, well. Yeah, we've got it back now. I know, thankfully, yes. <laughs> so once Dawn does actually get Fergus's attention, uh, he goes about trying to, if you like, re-establish mm. his validity as a king of great status. And so he goes about extolling the wondrousness and the brilliance of his own palace. And, of course, how else to do this but in poetry? And then we get a sort of interlude. Mm. And I, this is really... Inter- maybe an interpolation, but it's it's really quite lovely. Oh, it is, yeah. Because he starts talking to the man who's um, setting the fire. Yes. Yeah. a man of smoke. Yes, once he's in sort yeah. of the private he's, chamber yeah, and being looked his, after a bit better, yeah. yeah. And he starts talking about the virtues of different woods for burning. Mm. And it's the most beautiful piece of poetry and a bit of tree lore that really, I think, is almost unknown. Yeah, yeah. Um, it extols particularly the holly and the honeysuckle yeah. above all. yeah. Um, it's so good. I think we're going to, I'm going to put it up as a separate post. Yes, it's, yeah. it, it's worth reading. It really is, but it'll kind of slow us down if we go through it all now. Yeah, I think. this is getting long. It's already long. Enough. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we do get a few little incidents and stories about how Ovdon then becomes very much a favourite in the court now that he's got what he wants, and you know he's a he's an honoured guest. Got back. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. So he, he gets this honoured status anyway, until um, suddenly. All of his people show up on the door. A lot! All of them, just like the Wee Free Men. <laughs> well, if you know you're Terry Pratchett, yes. so you should. Oh, so you should. If you don't yeah. know it, so you should. The part of the Tiffany, set of Tiffany stories, yeah. there's these group of characters called the Wee Free Men, this sort yeah. of race of sort of Scottish. The Knack Mac Seagull, Nay King, Nay Laird, will never be fooled again. <laughs> they're absolutely brilliant, and they are, they're small blue. Insane small warriors, basically. Pick type yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah, but they are so much like our leprechauns. Oh, they, they really, really are. are. <laughs> In fact, I mean, they stand out there and they go, "Give us a king." Yeah, and they go, "Well, look, all right. If yes, free, you've done. Look, well." We'll give you a free harvest. Mm. We know you won't have to reap, you won't have to sow, you won't have to do anything. Harvest, there it comes. What about that then? Yeah. But that's not good enough for Fergus. No. Nope. He's not having it. And that's when they begin to get a bit ugly and they go, if you don't give us back our big man, then we're going to take all of the little coos and put them in with the mummy coos and you'll have no milk for your parade. Yeah, I'm giving you a king back, I don't care. And they go, reach. If you don't give us back our king, then we will go and put the muck into all the wells and the rivers and the pools and there'll be no water for you to drink. <laughs> the king says, ah, that's puny mischief. You still not get your king back. Right. Well, if you don't give us our big man, then we'll burn all the mills and all of the... That won't give me a king. Ah. <laughs> Right. <laughs> then we will snip the heads off all the corn in the fields. <laughs> you won't get your king back. Right. We'll shave off all the hair from all your men and your lady folk, and they'll look at each sight. Do that, and I'll kill you. <laughs> that's enough for him. Yeah. Right? End of negotiations. <laughs> that one's that's a step too far. Yeah. We'll put up with. Anything, but yeah. he won't have the heads of his warriors, Sean. No. And I have a feeling it's the warriors he's worried about. Yeah, rather not than the women, yeah. <laughs> well, at that point, it's yeah. Yuvdorn himself who comes out, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, to actually try and make peace. And he says to them, look, you know, I'm very flattered that you would do all of this stuff just for me. And by the way, this negotiation's over five nights. You know, yeah, they keep yeah. on coming back and saying, this is what we'll do now. Um, and But Yuvdorn says, look, I have to stay here. 
longer. I haven't. He basically hasn't finished his poet's penance. Yeah, and there's still some time to go. He knows that he can't leave until he's given away his treasure. And he tells them that they've got to put it right. As exactly, well. they have to fix everything that they've put wrong, and of, then go away. Sort of go home, lads. You're just making things worse. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, after another year mm. uh, has gone, so now he's. He has fulfilled the time, the five mm. years that was predicted by yes. his own poet, Eshop. Mm. And he also knows that he has to give Fergus one of his treasures. Yeah. Do you think the poet is sort of like self-fulfilling properties? Yeah. He's told him what he's got to do, so now he's now got he to, to do, do it. it. Yeah, I think so. I think that, yeah, it's half prediction, half sentence, all right. Yeah, yeah it does feel like mm-hmm. a, a legal thing. Yeah, yeah, he yeah. said yeah. it's going to happen. Yeah. Now it's got to happen. Yeah, and we've seen this yeah. over and over again. I was thinking of the Ikora. Yes, you know, yeah. Back to something said being said, so now they have to... Exactly. Do what they've been told yeah, that yeah. they're going to do. Yeah. It's at that point that Uvdorn lays out his treasures yeah. and says, Fergus, you've got to choose one of these. Yes. And it's a wonderful treasure bag. And it's a list, once again, in quatrains with a formula and is, yeah, it's a I, I think gorgeous we'll description. Out the poetry here, we will leave out the poetry. I think that's, that's really just sort good. of list the items and. You know, but if there was ever special. a crock of gold yeah, in, yeah. in our story, which there isn't, mm. this is the closest it is you're going to get to Yeah, it. definitely. But it's more like the crane skin bag. It is, yeah. Bag of the Fiona. This is what it's got in it. Firstly, there's his spear. Which, like any good legendary spear, uh, will misses. guarantee victory. It for... never misses. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Then there's the shield. Which, again... Like a legendary shield, it protects everybody regardless of whether they're a good fighter or a bad fighter. And there's his sword. And the sword, again, is really good. It's the best sword you ever could possibly wish for. And the cloak? Now it begins to get a bit uh, interesting. This cloak will never get old. It's going to sort of keep its usefulness. It won't wear out. And I love his shirt. It's um, a shirt with a history. It is, yeah. He just gives its its sort of provenance. He yeah. says, you know, yes, this was made by my grandma, grandfather's sister's or something aunt like that, or something yeah. like that. Yeah, it's yeah. a real vintage shirt. Exactly, yeah. total vintage. Then the belts, that's quite predictable as well. Yeah, we've met this before. We've met this sort of girdle that will protect uh, the wearer against disease and illness, mm-hmm. you know. I love the helmet. This one is more unusual. It is, rather, because this one is a prevention against baldness, <laughs> which, given that, you know, you could have a shield that will save your life or a helmet that will stop you going bald. <laughs> and these are <laughs> treasures well, of equal after rank. after all, we just pointed out that the worst thing yeah. that you could possibly do is shave the heads of your warriors. Oh, yeah. Therefore, a, a helmet that prevents Prevent. you going bald oh, that's, yeah. is quite a good, quite a good thing. It, yeah, yeah. it fits, doesn't it? It does. Then the cauldron. Now, this is an interesting one as well. It is, yeah. And this is one where even if you put stones into the cauldron, it would cook it so that it comes out as choice bits of meat. Is this the origin of the soup the stone soup cauldron? Yeah, the soup stone story, yeah, yeah. which, go and look it up, it's a good one. And um, there's the, his vat. Yeah, now it's this... It's not a vat for drinking out of Well, it's it, not, but it might brewing. be a vat for, for drinking for a full-sized person, but this one is more like a rejuvenating spa treatment, that if you bathe in it, it will give you sort of three times as much life. Yeah, go and buy bathing beer. Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> well, there are a lot of people who say that beer is a very good cosmetic yeah. product. Oh, and then this is mace. Yeah, and this is a, a good D&D mace, because as well as protecting the person who wields it, it protects an extra it nine an people. It has an area effect. It has an area effect. I'd say it's probably three square or something like that yeah yeah. Uh, then there's his horse rod <laughs> yes which is euphemistic <laughs> it's exactly what you expected to be really it is it's sort of any man who holds this in his hand will be irresistible to women <laughs> 
<laughs> so they think. Yeah. Uh, then there's the tympan. Yeah, and this one, he waxes quite lyrical about it. This gets several stanzas all to itself, yeah. where the others just get a single stanza. And this is a tympan that, you know, anyone could play it at all, even if they've never learned how to play the instrument at all. Yeah. And what's more, it'll even play itself a bit like a pianola. Or an MP3 player. Or an MP3 player, possibly. <laughs> <laughs> then there's his scissors. Yeah, and I like the fact that scissors are one of his treasures. And again, this will give the best haircut in the world and guarantee that whoever gets that haircut will get a girlfriend or boyfriend. Well, grooming was important. Oh, big time. And I mean, as we found with, uh, it's been found with the Norse, mm. the, the, the Viking oh, homes yeah. and your shears and scissors mm. were part of that kit you kept with you. Yes, and I think in, in somewhere in the triads of Ireland it comments on how one of the great virtues of Ireland is clean-shaven men. Mm-hmm. You know, so it was obviously something very important. Well, then you've got to, oh, the next one is the needle. Yeah, now this is only half translated in the Gadelica, so I thought it might again be something a bit risque, but it's more that it's a bit obscure. My reading of it is that, you know, it says it's a needle that's made of gold found in a bog. Yeah, look, like. an antique ancient exactly. gold or a lost gold yeah, that yeah. sort of quality. Yeah, sort of yeah. from, from a hoard somewhere. But I think the sense of it is that it says even if you uh, were fixing the mountain sails or mountain sheets of mull, they that they would end up beautifully yeah. embroidered. That it's so good that it could embroider the mountains. I think so, which yeah. Which is a lovely poetic image yeah. of the trees that lace the mountains together. Yeah, yeah. It's really nice, yeah. that one. Oh, and then that's followed by the renewable pigs. Yes, of course. Well-known motive. Exactly, that these are two pigs. Or object. Or porkers that you can kill one night and feed everyone and they'll come back alive the next Usually day. Usually as long as you keep bones. Exactly, yeah, although I don't think it's that specific in this. Then the next one's great. The halter. Yeah, now this is a really interesting one. <laughs> like a chop shop for cows, <laughs> Yeah, (laughs) it essentially says that if you go on a raid and you put this halter onto a cow, if the cow was black, it will then become white. Oh, it's not your cow. Yeah, no, 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 you had black cows. This is a white cow, obviously. Yeah. (laughs) And that's very wee free men. Very wee free men. (laughs) (laughs) And then lastly, we have the shoes. Yes, and now these are white bronze shoes. They allow the wearer to walk on the sea as easily as on the land. Yeah, and of course, uh, which did he choose? This is what Fergus chooses, and we know why. At this point in the story, Oiz returns from his visit to the land of the Loggerpan, and he then offers a lay, as everyone does in this story, mm. which essentially reaffirms what you've done with saying all along about the status and the wonder and the wealth of his yeah, land and his palace. He's right, it's amazing. Exactly, and so he, he's basically, yeah, given truth now yeah. to uh, what the king has said. And uh, then everyone is satisfied and Nilton heads off home and it even says in the text that's the end of his part of the story yeah <laughs> which it is yeah <laughs> but what gets me it's only then yeah we hear that Fergus has a twisted face yeah um that's the first time it's mentioned mm-hmm. and it says that oh well that's why he chose the shoes so yeah. he could go and wreak vengeance on the water monster yeah but I just find it's a bit odd that the king's got a, f- a mouth yeah that's so wide it goes right round to the back of his head exactly yeah and it's all twisted up yeah and, and it- nobody's mentioned no. <laughs> Not even all this huge rabble of wee free men. Okay. Oh, look at his face! Look yeah. at his face. 
<laughs> exactly. You might have expected something, but no, everyone's obviously very polite. You know, and the fact that the Blemish King is there in public yeah, in yeah. this story, it's yeah. like, oh, we forgot that's yeah. the other story. We've got to get back to the proper story now. It is a bit, um, yeah, 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 yeah. And in fact, from here on in, it's very much along the lines of the 8th century story. It's a bit more embroidered. There's a much more detailed blow-by-blow account of Fergus's battle with the water monster at the end. But he still goes, I want yeah, and falls down but dead. Talks about it a bit he more. does, yeah. It takes him a little a while. Bit operatic, his death scene. <laughs> it was a bit it? Shakespearean. I die, I die. He has killed me. <laughs> I die, I, I die. His soul is fled. Yes, thirty-two stanzas. Yeah. <laughs> there's one other odd thing at mm. the end. Not only does the dying king blame his wife. However, unjustly, because she sort of basically said, oh, this is you just yeah, being a grumpy, twisty face, you know, says, go and blame the monster. Yeah, he says that she's goaded him into yeah. killing the monster. But there's this odd line about um, his disfigurement being caused by Ufdorm. Yeah. And he blames the Lubicorn for the monster altogether. I know, yeah. It is it is a really odd one. I was wondering whether this is like a later rationalisation mm. of that uh, kind of caveat in the older story where, yes, you can swim anywhere except here in mm, Loch Rodriga. Mm. And it might even be suggesting that the Lugarpan are somehow responsible for the Murdrish being in Loch Rodriga yeah, in the first place. Yeah, yeah. 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 And put it so, there to get the king or something. You know. Yeah, for some reason. It's, it's yeah. not clear at all. It is just this throwaway line because it's already said, you know, while Fergus is dying, oh, of Don's shoes have kept me from drowning, even though I'm now dying of wounds. And then right at the end it goes, yeah, and of Don's fault for my crooked shape. Maybe it's that the old story doesn't give a reason. Mm. So that the modern, or the later storyteller yeah. has gone, well, we have to find a reason. Exactly. It. it must have been their fault. Yeah, yeah. And after all, that's what we, we found the same pro- process last in the last episode. Yeah. When we were talking about Mongol. Yes. There yeah. seemed to be a storyteller's gloss on an earlier, much terser text. Exactly, yeah. And as we found in some of the other stories, uh, here we have another kind of Middle Irish to early modern Irish, really extended version of an old Irish tale. And it's got loads of poetry. Mm-hmm. And again, it's sort of that the poetry seems slightly older You're reckoning in tone. poetry may be I Middle think that, Irish. Yeah, I think the poetry itself seems to be Middle Irish. Um, and so that's kind of like the centrepiece, if yeah, you like, and of the carried prose. on from the first. Exactly, yeah. yeah. So I think it's another example of that. Yeah. But it is much more detailed. And very funny. It is. Oh, it's so good. Just as the Mongol story we were looking at in the Oh, last yeah, episode. yeah. But we've still no idea <laughs> what Lubicorns have to do with either fairy shoemakers yeah. or rainbows. No. There's no connection no. so far. No, we'll just have to keep looking. Well, however tricky, delightful, entertaining our we free men Lugarpun are, there's an awfully long way to go before they get right down to those murky depths of the modern image of the leprechaun. <laughs> yeah, I hope so. Yeah. Actually, most of the sort of definitive descriptions mm. of the leprechaun you'll find on the internet... And even on QI... <laughs> yeah. ...seem to lead back to a late 19th century book by a man called D.F. McAnally. Yeah. I think it's American. Yeah. The book's called Irish Wonders, and I just have to read the subtitles. <laughs> absolutely brilliant. The ghosts, giants, pookas, demons, leprechauns, banshees, fairies, witches, widows... Old maids and other marvels of the Emerald Isle. <laughs> Old maids. Thank Old you widows. very much. Well, I, 
I know people would say it was a wonder of the Emerald Isle, but I don't think they meant that way. <laughs> it's absolutely wonderful. Yeah. What I think I, I also found very interesting mm. was that Yeats, in the, I mean, as the well-known fairy and folk tales with Irish peasantry, yeah. it's still in print and it's oh, yeah. still constantly referenced. Mm. What's well, about 11, 11 it's, years later? Yeah, than it's 1888. McAnally was 1877, so but, yeah. In fact, Yeats quotes McAnally as his source for describing leprechauns. Yeah, and this here we have a folklore collector asking another folklore collector instead of actually collecting some folklore. You left all that to Lady Gregory. <laughs> I also think, though, by the late 19th century, most Irish peasants could see a folklorist coming three counties off and knew exactly what it was they wanted to hear. <laughs> oh, that's another one. Now, what can we tell him this time? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I also don't think the poetry of William Allingham helped. Oh, God. No. Um, don't bother to even look it up. No, it's that up the, what is it, up the mountain? Oh, forget it. It's, oh, no, yeah, it's, it's, it's not worth it. Goblin Market's closer to the mark, let's say. Oh, yeah, but that's a good point. I know. <laughs> Get us onto that. Look, here's a typical description of McAnally. Yeah. Um, this is one he gives. There's hundreds of them, mm. but this is just one. Um, by birth, the leprechaun is of low descent, his father being an evil spirit and his mother a degenerate fairy. <laughs> By nature, he is a mischief maker, but Puck of the Emerald Isle. Uh, what, you mean <laughs> the English puka of the Irish... Well, what? Considering <laughs> Puck was taken from the puka yeah. and Shakespeare got it from, from the character from Kerry. Yeah, I mean, it's or the king of Kerry, for goodness yeah. sake. He is of diminutive size, not the puka. No, 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 no there's a leprechaun. He is of diminutive size, about three feet high, and is dressed in a little red jacket or roundabout, with red breeches buckled at the knee, grey or black stockings, and a hat cocked in the style of a century ago over a little old withered face. Round his neck is an Elizabethan ruff and frills of lace are at his wrists. On the wild west coast, where the Atlantic winds bring almost constant rain, he dispenses with the ruff and frills and wears a freeze overcoat over his pretty red suit. So unless on the lookout for the cocked hat, he might pass a leprechaun on the road and never know it's himself that's in it at all. Oh, it's awful, isn't it? Oh, my accent, but never mind. <laughs> that's how it's written, though. It is, yeah. yeah. It's, it's an interesting description, mm. and I think we'd recognise, although the leprechaun's usually in green nowadays, exactly, yeah. but you'd recognise the style of dress. Yeah. I think the, the costume's really interesting because it sounds like... Um, a kind of parody of English clothing, particularly of the aristocracy and the military. And I think that the uh, the difference between the East Coast and the West Coast is less about the weather and much more about the East Coast being within the pale where there would have been much more actual English aristocracy uh, encountered. And they're the ones with the ruffs and the frilly cuffs and so on. Whereas on the West Coast, beyond the pale, people were more likely to have encountered just the soldiery, essentially. Stuck beyond the pale. Exactly, if they were, if yeah. They were unlucky. This is really a typical kind of Irish humour and satire and it's taking the piss out of the uh, the ruling classes without them even noticing that that's what's going on. What, what you mean, like foreigners showing up offering gifts and then leaving with everything they have? Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Very much humour of the oppressed. <laughs> well, it sounds like the leprechauns to me. Yeah. The modern leprechaun. Oh, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. But I also quite like that... Um, that change from being dressed in red to dressed in green is kind of interesting. I I personally think the Americans might be to blame. But what it tells me is that it's originally, rather than a belittlement or a kind of a stereotype of the dilly-eye potato stage Irish... Which it is now. Which it is now. It started off as a piss take of the English, as a belittlement of the, the <laughs> masters and the oppressors. This is fantastic. Well, who knows? It's just a thought. It is, yeah. It's speculation, yeah, of course. absolutely. <laughs> yes. But it is true that the earliest... Uh, 
written record of leprechauns in English literature mm. is actually goes back as six five sixteen oh four. The lubricant. Yeah, other than the leprechaun, mm. is mentioned in Thomas Middleton, although it's Middleton and Decker's The Honest Whore. Yes. And uh, he's a mysterious Irish spirit, but not a water spirit. No, no, not a water spirit, but still kind of mischievous and definitely Irish, but mm. we don't really get much more than that, and this is no, just... It's only a passing mention, yeah. not a lot of detail. But it means that we're actually still no closer to bridging this gap if we want to, mm. but, you know, to finding how the one has become the other. Exactly, yeah. Part of what set me off thinking about this question, was reading two retellings of Norse legend. Um, one was by A.S. Mm. Byatt, which was a, a wonderful uh, story called Ragnarok. And the other one was Joanne Harris, who wrote Chocolat. She's also written the Gospel of Loki. And there's a story in the sort of saga of Asgard about Loki being sent off to go and find a load of gold in order to pay a blood fine. Mm -hmm. And so he goes off to the bottom of the sea to find Anvari, who is a dwarf who is said can move in the sea like a fish, which I quite mm. like. And what Anvari does is he collects up all the gold that's uh, the treasure lost by sunken ships and sort of hoards that all together. So Loki goes off and finds them and kind of, I think, captures him and mm -hmm. demands all of Anvari's hoard. It's good, it's his blood, it's his this price, is the blood life for life. Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah it is, isn't it? Um, and so Anvari tries to hide away one little gold ring, but Loki spots it and demands that as well. Yeah, and that's the one ring. It is! It's our birthday present! <laughs> our Christmas present! Okay, okay, our Christmas <laughs> present. But, but it is, in fact, that is this is the, the ring. backstory yeah. to the, uh, the Ring of the Nibelungs. Yeah, but there was that, it was that conjunction between a sort of a dwarf, a small person, under the sea and this hoard of treasure of gold and then of course you've got Bifrost which is the rainbow bridge to get to Asgard. Which is where they're taking it. Which yeah. is yeah I suddenly kind of went hang on a second I haven't seen that conjunction in the Irish but here it is in the north yeah, maybe yeah. this has influenced the modern idea of the leprechaun. It's Really difficult to tell. It is. Uh, there's all sorts of things. It could be it's a universal symbol or whether it, it is a direct connection. Mm. It's impossible to tell. It's an interesting idea. Mm. And it's the only way we're going to get a rainbow involved. It is. I mean, rainbows just have no real significance in Ireland. They're just far too common. Exactly, yeah. Time. They usually come with bad weather. <laughs> oh, no. Here yeah. we go. Another <laughs> rainbow. I think what is interesting, earlier on we were talking about Elf uh, Dawn's Needle. Yes. And I think one thing that struck me there was this idea of it made from the lost gold yeah um there's one sort of interpretation which says goblin gold yeah it's well, only I think that's contextual really yeah. but it's just this but idea gold from the bog gold from the bog yeah gold from a lost hoard exactly yeah. and it struck me that well lost treasure hoards mm. of, of bronze age gold yeah yeah they've been found in recent times and they must have been found mm. on, from now and again in ancient times exactly and they would seem like very mysterious presents from the other world exactly the yeah. gift from of the gold lost that place. might disappear that if yeah. you watched it yeah it would have all that quality mm. to it mm. And I think if we're going to look for a crop of gold, mm. that's a sort of image we have to look for. Yeah, yeah. I mean, my, my feeling, like we were talking about how Udon has this great treasure bag, but I feel like that's more like magical items or special items. It's I think the crane it's, skin bag. Yeah, it's, yeah. I mean, Malanan has, exactly. has one. Exactly, yeah. It's not quite... It's, it sounds the same, but it isn't, is yeah, it? Yeah, it's not quite the same as just a pile of gold, which immediately translates to money, rather than an object that can make you magic, basically. Yeah, with you a know? lost treasure hoard found mm. in the bog, and, oh. bog and uncovered, and gold, of course, as it never loses its sheen, yeah, yeah. is always magical. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I have to say, I kind of keep on coming across 
imagery from sort of, you know, fantasy fiction and from sort of game backgrounds and so on that purports to be sort of Celtic or Irish, but actually really strikes me much more as Norse. You know, you sort of have the great magical world tree and then there's this, you know, well of prophecy underneath it or whatever. Now, we do have wells, Mm -hmm. but they're not really in the same vein. It's also, I think, that the the leprechaun, the modern leprechaun, having red hair Mm. and this fallacy that people tend to associate red hair with being Irish. Except in the north of Ireland, which is... Yeah, but it's much more Scandinavian. You know, I've met much more Scandinavians with red hair than I have Irish people with red hair. Mm. Yeah, and we know that that, that Norse imagery does really get mixed up as the Vikings come to Ireland. Exactly, And especially in the east. Yeah, yeah. And the north. Yeah. Um, Although there it's through the Scots. Yeah, yeah. um, You know, there's red hair coming that way. Oh, there is as well, yeah. But it also reminded me of that uh, when we were looking at the children of Turin. Oh, yeah. And that beautiful piece about Balor. Oh, yeah. Who ties Ireland to a chain and toes it north so it'll always be cold. Exactly, yeah. And that is, as I said before, I can't see him as any other way than as a frost giant. Yeah, so there definitely is Norse influence on the Irish tradition. Yeah, it's a long, long established connection. But I think that in sort of contemporary times, I think there's a confusion between the imagery that comes from Norse legend and that comes from I think there tends to be quite a lot of confusion at times. Yes. I'm not sure that we can get much further with either the crock of gold or the rainbow, you know, but we still have not found this load of old cobblers. How do they become shoemakers? (laughs) You did find that tiny fragment with the magic shoes. Exactly. That's really the only thing from what we've looked at so far. There are those, um, the magic shoes of the Lugerpun in that 16th century text. Well, there's Mm. no sign of it in the 8th century text. Yeah. That's the only bit, really. Yeah, but it doesn't really help because there's no suggestion that the Lugerpun are shoemakers. No. And anyway, it's just one among a great pile of treasures. Exactly. And like a a bunch of magical items. Shoes just happen to be one of them, I feel. It is the one that happens to be useful to him. You know, it could have been the cloak that lets Exactly. Go in the water. Well, like that, that floated. Yeah, but oh, like yeah. that gloss in the eighth century yeah. one where he wraps a towel around his head. Yeah, it could you know? be a cloak. Exactly. So you know, it could just have it just as easily have been right. some other item of clothing. The eighth century gloss mm. suggests well, the cloak is just as good. Yeah. So yeah, shoes, cloak. Yeah, doesn't make much odds. Yeah, herbs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's one thing we could do. We could mm. take a, a look at some of the. There are references in the Mabinogian mm. to shoemakers. Uh, but I don't think it's going to get us much further. But we'll, let's just look let's at have some. a look anyway. Yeah. In the third branch of the Mabinogian, mm. Manawithan and Rhiannon and her son Pryderi mm. and his wife—they've temporarily sort of lost the fish. <laughs> they've lost. <laughs> they've lost the whole misplaced whales. whales. <laughs> it's not us that are lost. Well, it starts with the story. The whole thing disappears in a magical mist. Yeah. And it's not that they're lost. Mm. It's that they can't find humans or animals mm. for two years. It's mm. just nothing. Yeah. And so Manawithan decides that they really ought to start making a living because there's like nothing to eat mm. and they go off to make a living making saddles in England right but the problem is they're really really good at it being <laughs> great craftsmen of magical craftsmen of course and so after a while they're chased out by the local saddle makers who <laughs> say get out of here you're taking all our custom you're too good so basically they're they're breaching trade union That's regulations right. yeah. well after that they try shields mm-hmm. and then they try making shoes but each time they're driven away by the local trades yeah 
guilds, unions, yeah. whatever. Whatever they turn their hands to, they're just too good. Mm. Now, there's a lot more to the story. Yeah. And actually, it's a really good story. Yeah. But it's really not pertinent to our current mm. quest. But that's the only time they're yeah. to shoemakers. And it's it's sort of, again, it's one of a few different leather-based crafts. Uh, crafts. Yeah. You know, that the shield-making would also have been leather-based. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, in the fourth branch... Um, this is the one with Flau, mm-hmm. quite well known. Muth disguises Gwydion and Flau yeah. as craftsmen. And when they get to Ariandrod's castle, they make shoes that are so beautiful that she has to come out and admire them mm. and actually come and be measured for a pair of shoes. Oh, yes. That's the purpose. Mm. And of course, it's all just a ploy to get her to give her son a name, yeah. even though she's sworn she won't. Yeah. But that's it. Yeah. And again, they're only making shoes because it's something she has to come out. Yes, in order to be try, in the physical presence. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So they can't really do it from a distance yeah. so it's, it's, that's why they choose shoes mm. and again I think it's just part of this leather craft maybe. Yeah, yeah. Um, and of course when we were discussing the connection between the Irish loo and the Welsh show and then the continental logos mm-hmm. and we were talking about this and there is a, a mention somewhere of a continental dedication to logos uh, which seems to come from a guild of shoemakers, mm. but I mean, we we were when we were looking at Lou, it's very much that he is many crafted, yeah, and that's the same with the show in the Welsh. Yeah. The Romans referred to him as the Irish Mercury, yes, and yeah. of course Mercury being connected with trades and mm. crafts, you know, and, and so it's not connected to one. So mm. it might have been a group of I don't know shield makers yeah. who put up a dedication. It just happens to be one of shoemakers that survived. Yeah, I, I, we're <clears> looking for significance, mm. but, but it's very it's difficult. To find that is. Yeah. It's not not something you could actually say proves anything. No, I don't think so. Leatherworking was a very important craft. Oh yeah. I mean so many things had to be made of leather. Mm. I mean armour and so forth would, would, would be based on leather. Oh, so yeah. many um of your everyday objects. Exactly. So yeah. it's odd to me that in fact that leatherworking isn't mentioned among our Dedonan crafts, you know, the four yeah. craftsmen. Yeah. I mean it, I think it would be, wouldn't you? You would, yeah. I mean, I think the closest that we get to it are with some of those descriptions of the wonderful bridles and harnesses, you know, which are their leather that is obviously really well fitting onto mm-hmm. the, the horse, but it's also then been overlaid with metal or enamel, yeah, you know? and they're kind of, if there is the going to be a, a magical object, mm. it's the bridle, Exactly, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But even that isn't really, you know, it, it isn't one of the four craftsmen either, no, you know? No. Oh, I don't know. Maybe there's nothing so important as a good pair of shoes. <laughs> <laughs> and if you think about it, in a yeah. damp climate, if you've got no wellies or waterproof shoes, I know, you're yeah. stuffed. Well, pretty much, yes. Or you're stuck, quite literally, yeah. in the mud. I mean, it's almost too obvious, really. Mm. But, but it's not an especially magical craft, mm. just sort of part of the wider skill of leatherworking. Yeah, it's almost too mundane to be mm. special. You know, it is too everyday. It's not like the magic of smelting metal. Unless they raw shoe fetish or foot fetish. <laughs> There's always that possibility. <laughs> After all, some of the stuff we found. I know, yes. <laughs> but no, I don't. I'm not no, saying no, that. No, 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 no. no, no. <laughs> That's not the ancient. Move on, move on quickly. <laughs> I'm just thinking. After all that nipple sucking, I know. Yeah, people, the idea that there was ancient foot. Rituals, yes, with women and oh, bondage. Oh, we do have the one, of course, where Math has to have his feet on a footstool. Oh, yes. To put them on the ground. Yeah, yeah. That's in the fourth branch. <laughs> Go and look that one up. No, but that's no, no. Welsh. It's not Irish. In any way, it's not. It's just that he's, he's not allowed to have his yeah. feet touch the ground. Yeah. And we do have all these interesting um, shoes. We're always described as these metal sandals. Yeah, exactly. There's yeah. certainly a love of beautiful shoes because oh, the yeah. shoes are always m- mentioned. Yes, yes. You know, as but part so, of but the outfit. Yeah, but so, so are, are the... the cloaks and the tunics 
and the silken things next to the white yeah. skin, you know. I think a good pair of shoes was certainly valued. It was probably also high status, mm. you know, that it was something that because they had to be so particularly made that if you had a good pair of shoes, it meant you, you had high more status. money, I would Yes, say. and I mean, when you think of the Douglas description when he's oh, wandering yes. around with his the fur shoe. boots with the fur, the fur on, on the outside, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Instead of on the inside. Exactly, yeah. And that suggests a sort of low-status exactly. peasant. Yeah, there's churlish. Foot yeah, yeah. yeah, churlish foot gear. Mm. Churlish foot gear, that's really hard to say. <laughs> so I think what we're getting at yeah. is a very high-status form of leatherwork. Yeah. But this doesn't give you fairy shoemakers. No. There is a spurious etymology floating around the internet um, for the word leprechaun that suggests it means one shoe. I think it takes the le for meaning one of two. But as we know, this is completely erroneous because leprechaun is a metathesized word. It's originally lugarpan, and that seems pretty certain to be the lu kerpon little bodies. You know, mm-hmm. so yeah, it's just, even that is it's just is clutching at straws very much. Yeah, or clutching at laces. <laughs> And the other thing, I suppose, which also doesn't work is mm. I was thinking about the tale of the elves and the shoemaker, looking yeah. to see if I could tie anything up there. Yeah. But it's definitely a European tale mm. and maybe Norwegian. Yeah. And there's something itching away at the back of my mind saying, oh, go and look for a folktale, a Norse folktale. And, and, but I can't find it. Yeah. It's only just come to us while we've been talking. Exactly, so if yeah. I find anything, I'll put it up. And it may yeah. be I'm making it up. Yeah. Know. Just but, something itching away. Yeah, but the, the Elves and the Shoemaker, though, is a different class of story. It's totally different. You know? It's just I'm just clutching it. I know, exactly. But it's one of the things that I thought initially. <laughs> sort of like, OK, let's look for the Shoemakers. This is where you would look. But mm. no, I think it's another dead end, really. So I bet those looker would be giggling behind their huge vats of beer. Well, either that or bathing <laughs> in them, one or the other. <laughs> Okay. A long way though. That'd make a good Christmas card, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> waving at you out of a fat a bit. Oh, yeah. put one up. Yeah, please do. So I suppose we could say that the perverse caricature that is trotted out every Paddy's Day mm. and, and sold, sold to the tourists. tourists. <laughs> it's a lot less fun than our valiant little water sprites. Oh, absolutely. And with the logger pun, every man and every woman of them is more than capable of standing up <laughs> to the Biggest Ulster heroes. <laughs> Next Paddy's Day, put on your swimming togs, stick some herbs in your ears and off you go and join the Lugabon. <laughs> anyway, for now, it's too cold. So yeah. season's greetings. Yes, and happy holidays. And we will see you in the new year with some more wonderful tales of Mungon. And his battles with his poets. Yep. Thank you for listening to Ogilith Nanagus. Conversations about Irish mythology with the story archaeologists, Chris Thompson and Isolde Carmody. For more information or to subscribe, please visit www.storyarchaeology.com. You can get in touch via email on the storyarchaeologists at gmail.com.